Welcome to the Dirt on the Past, the museum edition, a YouTube and podcast program of the Extreme History Project, which explores ancient and historical topics relating to artifact collections from the Museum of the Rockies right here in Bozeman, Montana. At Extreme History, we explore the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past because, let's face it, history isn't pretty. But it's so important to know because it's at the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney, and me, Crystal Alegria, as we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt and in the archives and in museum collections to uncover fascinating histories that are relevant to today's issues and can help us move forward with a deeper understanding of the past. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. And this week, we are at the Museum of the Rockies E.L. Wiegand Digital Learning Studio with our guest, Betsy gaines Quammen. Hello. Yeah, we may have had her. I know. We've had her once before, and we're so excited to have her back. If you haven't already heard, we're also excited that we are doing this collaboration with the Museum of the Rockies here in Bozeman, Montana, to bring you a new version of the podcast called The Dirt on the Past. The Museum Edition. Okay, a little lag there. I I know. These these podcasts are going to be um, different only in the sense that we're in this amazing studio and we will have a video that will show up on either YouTube or Facebook feed. So you'll be able to listen to us in the normal way, but you can also see who we're talking to and see if we have artifacts, which today we don't, but you still get to see our lovely guest. Um, So today we welcome Betsy Gaines Quammen to talk about her new book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. Um, Welcome, Betsy. We're so happy to have you here. I am so happy to be here. I love this space and I love you guys. So we're going to have fun. I know. We're going to have a great time. (laughs) Fantastic. And we've done a podcast with you before, Betsy. I think that's maybe been a a year or two ago now that we did with your first book, American Zion. So if folks haven't listened to that podcast, they should go back in our archives and find that one and listen to that one Definitely. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, So we like to start off by telling our listeners and viewers a little bit about our guest. So Dr. Betsy Gaines-Quammen is a historian and writer. She received a PhD. PhD in environmental history from Montana State University, where she studied religion, history, and the philosophy of science. Her dissertation focused on Mormon history and the roots of armed public land conflicts occurring in Western, the Western United States. Betsy examines the intersection of extremism, public lands, wildlife, and other issues that divide Western communities. She's the author of American Zion, Clive and Bundy, God, and Public Lands in the West, and the, her newest book, True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. Betsy lives in Bozeman, Montana, with her husband, writer David Quammen. Hey, well, hey. <laughs> I love I know, and place. we were just saying before we went on air that David would love the the studio here with all with the dodo and the <laughs> well maybe we can lure him in yeah, and talk about one of, one of his days. books yeah it'd be wonderful yes all right Betsy so we always love to start off our conversations asking our guests how they came to the research that they do and so I just wanted to ask you more about the 
um, history of the West and those myths and misconceptions of the West, which of, of course is a, a topic of yours, but also really a favorite topic yeah. of ours as well. So how did you come to history and becoming a historian and to this field? And what is fascinating to you about the study of history? That's a really good question because I'm an unlikely participant in all this. I, I did not seem to seek out to be a, a, a historian. In fact, I was working in conservation and uh, that really was uh, my primary focus. I began through my work in conservation to pay attention to how people viewed landscape. Mm. And I actually was working in Mongolia and Bhutan, uh, as well as the West on various projects and began to work with religious groups. And by working with religious groups, I started to look at how religious prisms or the way of seeing things were really influenced by people's beliefs. And I really wanted to work in Mongolia along these lines in, in terms of environmental history, mm -hmm. the ways of seeing landscape, cultural perspectives on landscape. But I didn't speak fluent Mongolian and I couldn't read primary text. So I decided that I would look at um, LDS or the Latter-day Saints, the history of the Latter-day Saints and Mormonism and how that really impacted the way people viewed public lands, uh, looking at the roots of the Sagebrush Rebellion right. and seeing what kind of influences were layered in there in terms of Latter-day Saint sensibilities, history, ways of seeing. And that's how I wrote American Zion. And in writing American Zion, my first book, which actually was my dissertation um, at Montana State, I began to see how religious views also layered in with Western mythologies. So I looked at the cowboy myth and I looked at rugged individualism and all the things that we think of, you know, manifest destiny, but I also, with this book, began to look at how lands, um, the the myth of uh, the West as hale and hearty, a, a salubrious place where people can come and somehow not be impacted by COVID. And so these these myths became really, really interesting in terms of understanding the West. And as a historian, again, looking through these prisms, that the, the way we regard lands through these beliefs, both religious and mythological. And, uh, and we could get into how those overlay too, but that would be a big conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We might have today. <laughs> That's true. Yes. It's back on the tip. So big. Yeah. yeah, this is a great chair, but it does tip easily. I know. I've been in that one too. Um, yeah. So, so I'm so interested because I think I share a little bit of kind of an eclectic academic background. And so I often relate a lot to the way you've approached your subject. So I, I found your previous book fascinating because there's history in it, but then you're also having present day conversations with, with people to really understand um, what is going on with the intertwining of Latter-day Saints, understanding of religion and how that is affect all these other ideas about public land in the West and then leads to armed standoffs. So in this case, in True West, I wanna ask you then tell us a little bit of how you first conceived of the idea of what it seems like to me, and I could be wrong, but you're kind of hitting the road, almost doing an ethnography um, of certain communities in the West, really looking at rural communities. And I come from an anthropological background and you know this participant observation where you're showing up at these red pill 
um, you know, events and things like that. You're going, you're showing up in communities, but you're, you're talking to people, but then you also are bringing in all of your historical knowledge about the West itself. And then that layer of mythology on the West, because that's almost like a dual history of sort of mm -hmm. how these myths started, like a history of a myth. And then the history of what was actually happening in these Western lands. And then you're, but you're going out and really so much of the substance of this book is taking things that historians are familiar with in terms of the history and the mythology, but really saying, how is this operating today? So tell us a little bit about then how you conceived of this and did it start out as something else and it veered in this direction or do you see yourself with kind of an anthropological, you know, bent or side to you that maybe began with your first book or, hmm. yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I would have to say that I love tangles. I love the idea of things tangling together. I'm I'm very much somebody who likes to understand the story behind the story behind the story behind the story. And that, in addition to the fact that I love talking, I love hanging out with people. I love becoming friends with people. I love relationship building. Uh, I'm really, uh, you know, sort of people focused. And and I should say, you know, I talk about bad guys in this book. I, I spend time talking about Christian nationalists. Right. I don't like those people. So there are definitely bad guys. Sure. But But I really felt like we were getting versions of one another, particularly during COVID when we were all mm -hmm. sheltering in place mm -hmm. and we were othering and we were, you know, sort of marginalizing and we were getting ever more out of sync with one another and we were becoming factional. It, yes. it was really um, problematic to me. And so I did start with a completely different subject. When I pitched this book, it was going to be anti-science. I want to write a history okay. of America and anti-science. Because coming out of COVID, and thinking about where where are people with understanding science, whether it's medical science or whatever else, but I could see how that would be a topic that draws on other things you've done, but comes right out of a COVID situation. It was crazy because you know, one as I began to see what was happening, I really saw something that was absolutely unprecedented. So I I started with anti science, but then I started to see what was happening mm. with anti science as a movement. Mm -hmm. And and I'm talking about the anti-vaxxers mm -hmm. who began to collaborate with militia, with the patriots, um, with um, other, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the Trumpets, the, the Trumpism people, the stop the steal, um, the people who believed in QAnon, uh, and, and which is the, you know, whole idea of yes. deep state and uh, celebrities bathing in blood and and prophecies and Donald Trump and all of that all of yes. that yeah so, the old child ring cabal of exactly and yeah bathing in blood yes. and it's yeah. it's outrageous and yet it really took root mm. and so when I started thinking about anti-science anti-science I saw that it was becoming much bigger than I think I initially conceived of in, in thinking about this book. And so I start the book with a um, trip to the museum, a dinosaur museum in Glendive, yes, which that's is a, a powerful way to start, which is a creation museum. <laughs> yeah. And, and I talk about how friendly the, the um, director is absolutely lovely man, yeah. but, but how that idea of biblical literalism is so dangerous and 
I had no idea that by the time the book came out, we would have a speaker of the house who believed that dinosaurs and human humans walked on earth at the same time. So what I was trying to do was unpack these ideas, unpack these myths and make them, you know, sort of, I mean, to show how they connected to what we're doing right now and how we're relating to each other right now and what's happening to our communities, our region, and our country. Because one of the things I talk about in this book is that Western mythology is foundational to the way Americans see themselves, whether they realize it or not. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, kind of um, going back to your book and talking about how you kind of unpacked all these things that you just spoke about, you really started the reader off um, in a museum. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of appropriate that we're sitting in a museum <laughs> right. right now. Right. Yes, <laughs> museum is a big theme in here. <laughs> but you talk about kind of those um, myths of the American West, and the way you do that is through this imagined museums of myths mm-hmm. as you go through the book. And so I love that how you how you did that. Um, and we won't today be able we won't have time to discuss, of course, all the myths that you talk about in the book. But I want to start with one of the big myths of the West that we encounter. And um, that's the idea that this place, the West, was empty prior to settlement in the 1860s by non-Native people. And this myth um, that no one lived on this land or used this land, and it was just there available for the taking. Mm -hmm. And what that means by the taking is the idea that it was... um, it was just available for monetization. Mm -hmm. And that's in the form of agriculture, that's in the form of extractive industries, and that's in the form of all these different ways that money is made from this land, Mm -hmm. from this landscape. And, um, you know, we have a really good, um, our, I think it's our, I don't know if it's still our tagline for the state of Montana, but we're, we're called the treasure yeah. state. And that really pretty much sums it up. Right. People were here to take the treasure and take it out of this place and use it for their own personal gain. And even our town founder, John Bozeman, said of the settlement that Bozeman is, quote, standing right at the gate of the mountains, ready to swallow up all the tender feet that would reach the territory from the east with their golden fleeces to be taken care of. So, you know, that really, that's our right from the mouth of John Bozeman himself. Mm-hmm. So can you speak a little bit to this, Betsy, and this idea that you really talked about in the book? Yeah, this is something that I think we've seen. It, it's cyclical. Uh, uh, when we had this idea of the West, the last place settled by Europeans, uh, there was this idea that you know you could go out and and have this wonderful farm or log these virgin forests or mine for for gold that would you know sort of pour from streams in the mountains and and that there was no recognition that this was indigenous land i mean this is unceded indigenous land and and this land this west was not unpeopled it it was it was dispossessed and so we we do for whatever reason as as americans have work to do in recognizing that. And, and I think that what I talk about, which I which is really thrilling, is this ongoing native 
resistance to this idea. And, and I talk quite a bit about that, which, which is thrilling. And so we do, in looking at this place, we need to recognize that this is a place of vital cultures that have been here since time immemorial. And, and so that's one of the biggest myths I want to bust. But this also, this idea of the commodification of the West, of going out and, and again, profiting from it. It's, it's not, it's not a good relationship. It's not a sustainable relationship. We still have this idea of the never ending frontier and endless resources that, that somehow it, there's just never an end to what we can consume and take. And we continue to see boom and bust cycles that impact communities. We continue to see the wealthy encroaching into some of our last really important habitats. Uh, we, we continue to see people moving in here, looking at the show Yellowstone, that soapy Kevin Costner show, thinking- <laughs> Never I, seen it. Mm, I, I know. You know what? Yeah. I, I had to see it. I had to see it just because yeah, I yeah, talked about it. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but of it's course, sorry. of course. I, no, it's all right. Oh it's my gosh, right. I am not a fan at all. It's really, I mean, I think watching it, why would you move to Montana at that? That's mm. the way you see Montana. Yeah, and yet, that's what is really mm-hmm. strange to me is that they see this show, which is full of murder and greed and and all these things, and they and and then you want to go to a place where all that happens. Why and, why would you want to do that? It's yeah. really strange, it's and strange. yet it has been a phenomenon. Yeah. I think I yeah. read recently that um, the population of Bozeman has grown seventeen percent in the last three years. Wow. Part of that is due Co- to Yellowstone. COVID and Yellowstone. I mean, it's it the terrible kind of coincidence of those two things, I think. Yeah. And COVID refugees. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Kevin and, Costner wanted Yes, exactly. <laughs> when we do our walking tours, we often have people, you know, we'll say, where, where are you from? You know, and why did you come, you know, why are you visiting Montana? Or what, you know, what are you doing? Are you going to Yellowstone? national park or you know mm-hmm. and they say well we saw yellowstone and we just wanted to come visit montana because of that so it's really interesting we get a lot of yellowstone tourism well the show and yeah, i talked to uh, i yeah. talked to folks or, or rather real estate agents who said yeah. yellowstone was a huge part of their business wow. that show people would buy the site unseen, unseen. Yeah. that's what's crazy which yeah. is and you know in a way i kind of understand it because during covid you had people who were locked up in perhaps sure. in areas with with more stringent restrictions right and all of a sudden you saw this television show with like wide open vistas and people riding horses and sort of this idea myth of unbridled liberty and they think gosh you know Montana's where I Mm -hmm. should be so COVID was a huge catalyst in making Yellowstone so popular I think yeah. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I got to episode two. <laughs> yeah. Did you see the episode where they go on a date? I don't even remember the characters. The main woman and one of the main guys, and they go on a date in a pickup truck to watch a wolf eat an elk. And they mm. pull up right in front of the wolves as the wolves eat the elk. Like, that's mm. what we do that's in what Montana. We do in Montana. <laughs> Big date night. Mm-hmm. I, it's just crazy. But, you know, that's just for me. And And really, you know, thinking about the Yellowstone show versus A River Runs Through It that mm-hmm. was filmed here 30 years ago, 31 years ago now. And we had a lot of tourism from that. Right. And we had a lot of people move here from that. But um, I can see that much more than the show Yellowstone because A River Runs Through It was um, it, it was about fishing. It was about this lifestyle. It was very different than the, the 
family that is portrayed in Yellowstone. The fam, the two families are very distinct and very different. So I, I do have a yes. funny story about yeah. that. Yeah. So um, Chris Latre, who we were talking yeah. about earlier, yeah. he uh, he's Montana Poet Laureate, and he's also coming out with his book, Becoming Little Shell. His tribe was just recognized a few years right. ago. Right, right. He's co-editing an anthology, a Montana anthology with Kathleen McLaughlin, who wrote, she's uh, from Butte, she wrote Blood Money about okay. people who sell their plasma to stretch their yes. paycheck. Yes, She's fantastic. They both are wonderful. And they're coming out with this anthology about real Montana, and they asked me to write a chapter about how odious fly fishing literature is and how breathy <laughs> and awful and so I get to write and I, it's not everybody and I, I don't I don't want to put off those who are just huge fans um, my husband happened to be a fly fishing guide and while well, he was getting you know an aspiring writer yeah. and he actually wrote some really beautiful fly fishing literature but I am so <laughs> excited to write about the self-importance yeah. of of fly fishing literature yeah and, um, mm -hmm. so I, I that's gonna be That'll so be fun yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> I have found some doozies oh I bet yeah and it is nothing like it used to be from what I hear too I mean my husband used to come up when he was much younger before we lived here to fly fish and what you would catch then and how there was so much less pressure on the fish now with rising temperatures but also so many people he doesn't really enjoy fly fishing like he used to it's really changed well mm -hmm. you go to the madison during a hatch yeah. and it's wall-to-wall oh, -wall -wall people yeah. I mean, it's absolutely nuts yes. so um you know not to say that we don't like people visiting montana no so i just love it. it just yeah. needs to be yeah. reconsidered and yeah. it needs to be more sustainable because montana's popularity is really hurting it mm -hmm. Yeah, we love to see people come to Montana and visit in a responsible way. Yeah. And like you mentioned in the book, you know, the Montana Tourism Office is really promoting that um, responsible tourism when they, when people come to Montana. Yeah. But it's interesting that you are really talking about a whole new myth that's um, layering on a foundation of other myths. So this this Yellowstone series, this show is is layered upon these myths about these open lands, these wilderness lands, these um, cowboy myths, these bootstrap myths. It's it's fascinating. Playgrounds. It, yes. In yeah. which and playgrounds for the wealthy, this and that, but but how and and what you can get away with and what you can do. And um and some of it's quite ugly, but yeah. people find it fascinating and kind of want a piece of that. And again, it's kind of this false sense of what is and what was that is still propelling people to kind of act in certain ways, um, which I think is fascinating. So, so you've definitely pulled on that in there. And I want to, I want to ask, because we're talking about um, empty landscapes and wilderness. And, and one of the things, you know, that has always brought people to Montana is, is our national parks, Glacier mm -hmm. National Park, Yellowstone National Park. And these were established quite a ways back, but one of the chapters of the book, you really talk a lot about Escalante. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the town around there and you talk about um, different perspectives that people in that town and around that town had about the establishment of it and then now currently reacting to the impact. So talk a little bit about that and how the actual designation of the monument, um, why it, that was polarizing and then how the town today feels about it. 
Right. You know, that's a really interesting chapter for me, for a researcher, because it, I talk to so many people with so many different points of view. Mm. It's very polarizing in that town. The monument's very polarizing. Right. And so you have some people who are huge, huge supporters and some people who are livid still, even though it was designated in 1996. And just to remind people, before it was a national monument, before it was designated under the Clinton administration, mm -hmm. what was all that land and it's, how it's it used? Bureau of land, and so land it was much more land. accessible to people to use in certain ways as BLM land. Well, it was, it was, oh, that's a really good question. I mean, it doesn't look like land I'd want to graze my cattle on. That's, said, that is exactly I mean, that's what's so strange, it, you know. And they didn't, no. they didn't say you couldn't graze mm. cattle. There are very few allotments. I, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly how many, but it, it's not very many. Right. Um, I think the controversy was that they wanted to mine the Kaparowitz Plateau, okay. and there were all these promises of jobs that went with coal mining, but it wasn't at the end of the day uh, financially feasible. It was going to cost way more to do mitigation than it was to extract the coal. So there were a lot of people who were really excited about the idea of jobs, which makes sense. Sure. Um, but uh, but the, there were a lot of, you know, sort of really actually a lot of misinformation around it because it was never going to be this like wonderful job creating opportunity. It was going to have grave environmental impacts and it was going to be another situation of boom and bust. Right. Um, that said, there's been this huge sort of rally behind tourist um, jobs, but those are seasonal and those are really hard to, you know, raise families. Uh, right. And these, yeah. these extractive industries, mining, logging, raising in the area have cachet because they're traditional jobs that, right. that used to pay well. They used to pay well. Right. And so, so that is really um, a controversy. I, I loved talking to one of the characters there, a woman named Candy DeGraw, who grew up in a Mormon family. Um, it, it's actually a little ways away, but it's in Southern Utah, and it has very similar culture. But she talks about the fact that the conservationists who, conservationists who came in and really loved the idea of the monument were hugely condescending to the local mm, people. And, right. and they were basically like, we know how to use this land better than you. And and so the local people um, were offended by that and have dug in. It was not a good strategy for getting people all on the same page. Uh, and so she talked a lot about that uh, and the fact that people were unwilling to even be friends with um, local LDS people, that that there was, I mean, she was funny. She said, you know, these people think they're so open-minded, the mm -hmm. conservationists who mm -hmm. came here, but they're not even willing to be friends with people with a different religious perspective, which I thought was really interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, it yeah. was. And then I ended up, I mean, the town visit ended up being fascinating because I ended up meeting with one of these guys that because of Black Lives Matter created a he wouldn't let me call it a militia. I remember yeah. that part in the book. You're yes. like militia, and he's like, "Well, yeah, yeah, not you know, really, this is but a this is a guard like, or something. It's a protect. It's called mm. the Escalante Guard. Mm -hmm. You know, protecting their community. And it turned out that they were protecting their community from Antifa, mm. which was the which let's yeah that's a hot spot right yeah, there in escalante for antifa right they all just hunker down there and i'm totally kidding they yeah. do not okay but yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's an imagined fear it's again an imagined yeah. fear that came out of a really a sort of a, a, a loose coalition of people in the pacific northwest it actually right. came, it started in um minnesota 
and then it was in the Pacific Northwest, and there were clashes during sure. the Black Lives Matter, but um, uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, protests. But uh, but the thing that I really do in this book is I look at how all the things that happened to us during those years of mm-hmm. those convulsive years yeah. and, yes. and how they, they yeah. played out in the West, what they did to communities and, and how they really did wrap around various mythologies and, and various sorts of misinformation. So this is a book about everything, <laughs> uh, including taking what was happening in the West all the way to January 6th. And and the right. pa- patriot movement here, the militia movement here, uh, armed protests here, going to the capital during the insurrection. Because a lot of people from this region that I mean, not only from Montana but from all the regions around and the states around, a lot of them ended up at the capital in the worst. Yeah. Well, yeah. one in particular was Stuart Rhodes, mm-hmm. who uh, was the co-founder of the Oath Keepers. Yes, with talk a his, lot about him. With his, his wife, wife Pasha yes. Adams, who lives in Eureka, Montana. Right. Um, she's since left the movement. She has since divorced Stuart Rhodes. And I will tell you, she is one of the toughest, smartest, funniest people I have ever met. And I, one of the fav- my favorite things about writing this book is meeting Tasha Adams, who met Stuart Rhodes as a very young woman, was severely manipulated, was abused. abused. Their yeah. kids were abused. Yeah. He was a bad guy. And, um, and, you know, again, he cut his teeth in the West. He, he grew up in Las Vegas, but he um, was very involved with the Bundy family in um, Clark County, Nevada, the whole Battle of Bunkerville, which was the arm um, standoff in 2014. And that really put wind in his sails as well as money in his coffers. Right. Um, and uh, and then there he was, um, at, you know, in October of 2020, he was talking about the fact that the election was going to be stolen. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was fascinating as I was writing this book to anticipate right. what was going to happen when, as we said at the beginning of the interview, the anti-vaxxers and the um, and Stuart Rose and the militia and the constitutional sheriffs and you know people who believed in QAnon and lizard people who took over the world right. were all together right. at the Red Pill Expo that yeah. you mentioned at the very beginning. This idea of that conspiracy theorists believe that if you take the red pill, you're going to see everything the way yeah. Keanu Reeves saw it. In right. Right. Yes. You know. Yes. But I loved, Betsy, how you really took those myths back to their origin stories, too. And really, it it really helped me better understand kind of where we're at today mm-hmm. based on the history that you told and kind of teased out all those different lines that kind of came together at this time in 2020, where there was just kind of this explosion of all this happening. Yeah. And it makes sense. It makes it makes so much more sense on the why not, not that any of it is good but it makes sense as to why a lot of this stuff happened and why ultimately january 6th happened and so just to better understand how those players came together and those movements and those um different groups came together was was well i love really the phrase um, to me to understand you know peeing on the anthill because oh i, God, I yeah. really felt yeah. like it, it's everything yeah. you're talking about is you know, that guy saying it's like there, it's, there's an anthill and what Trump did was just peel over. There's all this fomenting, all this other weird stuff going on, all these other threads of conspiracies. And and in his tenure as president or even leading up to it, you know, politically with this this huge megaphone could just stoke 
all of those things and himself bring them together and make that entanglement happen, you know, in people's minds so that they, you know, these things were heaped on each other. Um, yeah, so I wanna... that was Jay Pounder, okay. who was part yeah. of, like, he wrote a book called The Red Pill, mm. and uh, he's since left the movement, but he was very involved with the militia movement and Christian nationalism, and the whole idea of front lines of homelands in the Idaho panhandle, which I which I write about again, right. based on mythology, right. but, uh, but he's the one who told me that he was absolutely... Um, freaked out mm. by what he saw Trump doing right. to his movement. Right. And that's when he said, I'm out of here. Yeah. Now, um, this brings me to a point, because this is one of the questions Chris yeah, and I were talking yeah. about just before, is um, throughout your book, and you talk about, like, you know, there are bad guys out there. Other than that, you really enjoyed talking and meeting with people. So I want to ask you sort of what your thoughts are on how somebody becomes what we would say across that line of truly radicalized or fanatical. So we have somebody who was down that path, but then sees what Trump's doing. And Jay's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pull myself back. So he hadn't tipped over beyond coming back. But I, I feel that there were people in this book, people that you met, people that we know of who that's it. They're kind of, gone down a path and there's no sitting down across a cup of coffee at a diner and hearing like there's no listening on their part anymore there's just spewing and am I wrong or how do you think someone gets into that position because I feel like going forward I think what you're advocating for is you know listening and talking to each other and not demonizing but there's some people who I sense you might just be wasting your efforts. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, first of all, there are truly bad. People. Yeah, I mean yeah. that that are not only have ugly racist um, ideas, but they're making money on Off on it, people's profiting. fear, mm-hmm. and they're and they're making money on spewing mm-hmm. uh, really ugly stuff, and yeah. and and so there's this kind of click, um, baity thing going on. There's also people who are gaining power keeping us polarized, you know, and you can watch the way people campaign, um, politicians and how they're othering, dehumanizing, you know, we need to pay attention to that because it's easy to fall into traps and and that's for anybody um, to to fall into these traps that create hate. And so I think that's really important. But what I was seeing is that there are and, and I, I spend a lot of time in rural communities, although, you know, urban communities can be just as vulnerable, but rural, rural communities that are economically hamstrung, like that the, they are struggling, um, people want to have a bad guy and, and people want to be, they're angry and right. they feel, they feel neglected and left behind and not listened to. And they become targets for uh, people who are you know, radicalizing people. Um, and so, you know, Ammon Bundy, and I talked to him mm. um, at the beginning of COVID, he created an organization called People's Rights Network, which uh, was a uh, vigil Annie neighborhood watch, and I'm doing air mm. quotes, uh, where people don't trust the government, don't trust your police. If something happens, let's, let's, let's all show up and we can bring arms. And And so I don't know if you recall this, but it was People's Right Net- Network that were uh, that were in front of Matt Kelly's house. And you, you put that in the book, and I remember thinking, because I had been hearing all about yeah. that, and it was amazing to hear how the community itself yes. went to such great lengths. And and who was it that had um, parked outside, they had a trailer that was blaring something super annoying, 
constantly so that it it Viagra ads yes, and a Viagra, fart, yes. fart machine. I, and the fart machine. Yes. And I I was like brilliant. Like, yeah. like and these... Matt Kelly it was the yeah. health supervisor for Gallatin County. Absolutely. And he, and he lives right here in Bozeman. And no, the neighbors rallied. They were hilarious. And this and is yeah, during COVID. Viagra. Because these were other people yeah. coming from other places wanting to stand out there. And and I'm, he has kids. It's yeah. scary. You know, you got to get in and out of your house. And, okay, and all kinds really of things scary. were happening. And then to be able to have the, the neighborhood be like, we're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, that, that was nice to see in that case, but not everybody has that. Well, you know? and, and I think that, and I don't know how to scale this because I really want to think about this, but I found that in communities, I had one man who I love and you'll have to read about it in the book. Um, it didn't start out that way. It was really jarring to have a conversation with him. But he's in a tiny little town in eastern Montana. Well, we want to and, talk about him. Yeah, he's yeah. in here from Terry. Oh, okay, We're talking yeah. about Lance. And, yeah. he, and he's since been radicalized. Yes. And, and, yes. and once there was a conversation, once there was engagement, that really broke down. And so, so I was very concerned about people in communities susceptible to radicalization because when you have a community that's hurting economically that's angry and that's listening to just earfuls of am hate radio and uh, and conspiracy theories and seeing that on online or, or even you know fox news which right. is mainstream right. news um it, it it's important to put to put face in front of face, you know, yeah, it, mm -hmm. it just, it's so important to sit down and mm -hmm. talk because you realize you can get through that pretty quickly um, in, in people who have not truly been radicalized. Once they're radicalized, it's, there's a lot. I don't, I'm not sure how you get through. Right. So right. do you feel like once you start having a conversation, you can fairly quickly assess if you're talking with somebody who is open to talking or someone who's been radicalized. You feel like, you know, like yeah. over a cup of coffee, by the time the coffee's finished, you kind of know if you maybe have a relationship, you can continue with this person or something that you would. And, and I have to, to remember as a, a cis white middle-aged lady, yeah, I, hear I can you. go yep, in exactly. totally. and talk to people that other people couldn't. Yes. You know, at the beginning of this, I was thinking, like, you remember when there were all these like Kareny things happening? Oh, yes. There was Black Lives Matter and and people were behaving so badly. And and this whole idea of come and get your people, you know, white folks mm -hmm. come and get your people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this was kind of like me going, mm -hmm. okay, I can do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. gonna go and talk to people and and just see where they are. And I did, you know, I really found that there was so much common ground. That's not the case always Everywhere, and yeah, even if we had pol very st strong political differences we could find places to agree and and common values and i had mike sat say that to me too who started the idaho 97 percent, which was supposed to be um you know the juxtaposition to the three percenters mm, another yeah. pressure group yeah. and he was saying you know i can go into rural communities and really find common ground and mike is black and jewish right. and he's in idaho so so and he i i think he is absolutely amazing too but it but it really goes to show you that being intentionally manipulated to to distrust and to not like and to even hate yeah and 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 that's being done that's being foisted on us and not in every case but to some degree and we can get around that if we're willing to 
get out of our little uh, right. circles right. because we think yeah. we become ever more insulated. So, and it's not healthy. And it's due to like newspapers, you know, local yeah, newspapers. Yeah. Yes. Public we institutions. You know, we work out with each other mm -hmm. um, for those years. So so we got to figure out ways yeah. to get back and engage. So in your book, you give some ways to do that, kind of through example. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples is through Lance. Um, how do you say his last name? Lance Calfell. Calfell. And you're wearing his hat. I oh, see. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, he got a hold of me this morning to see if I wanted a half, um, half a beat. Like, oh, and, uh, you don't want it. I'll have it. Oh, he, <laughs> give him my, yeah, I'll give you my contact. Have, we still have, um, stuff from last year. I mean, we bought, nice. my family bought one. It's, it's a lot to get through. I know. It's yeah. a lot. So I wasn't going to tell him that because, yeah. because he, it. he, it is delicious. So yeah, he and I become we have become such good friends that's wonderful Aww. so so you talk about this relationship in the book and how you met and he lives in terry montana yes and which is a very small very small town, town in Darling. eastern montana yeah. but can you can you talk about this relationship that you build and you've mentioned a little bit about it but kind of talk about how you guys came together and then how this relationship has built over time and you guys are very at odds politically i mean you are very you see things a lot different but you've been able to figure out a relationship so maybe you could talk a little bit about that because this is a really good example of how people can move forward in discussion when someone doesn't see the same things that they do in in a lot of different ways politically yeah, and I think I I do want to say that Lance is pretty special. Like yeah. he I, he is again. I keep going to this idea of being funny. There's something about humor yes. that's just like yes. completely breaks mm -hmm. the ice. And he is a stitch. Yeah. <laughs> and um and so when I sat down with him, he was very angry. I I was introduced to him um, by a friend of a friend, and he had he was really angry at Democrats. He's really angry at the government. He's really angry at the BLM, and I should say, I I talk about both BLMs in yeah. this um, right. the, the right. Bureau of Land Management, <laughs> yes. Black Lives Matter. Right. Yes. So I want in this case, it was Bureau of Land Management. Mm -hmm. He's a public lands rancher, and um and he and I were having a conversation at breakfast over coffee, and and he was he said he'd been radicalized and he was angry, and I was sort of you know kind of thinking in my head like what does that mean and how did that done you know I I was sort of preoccupied yeah. and all of a sudden he said I've said this to you three times are so you going to take down my contact information right, right. And, and I and then I thought oh okay all right uh, you know and I jotted it down and he invited me to his ranch yeah. and um in the meantime he'd asked to read American Zion which I thought uh-oh oh, because it talks <laughs> about public land ranching and not a very nice light um that said not a, all public land ranchers are the bundys right um the family that engaged in um the action in 2014 and in 2016 um in our armed events on public lands one in nevada and one in oregon well he wrote me we wrote each other and um and i i have the emails in here i mean he's just he's just the best and uh and i went and visited him and i've since gone and visited him three times i brought my dad there oh, um my dad you know who was a conservative republican who became a democrat when he saw what was going on with george bush mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and uh george bush jr yeah george bush jr jr, jr. yeah um and he switched parties yeah. and 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 um he said but i gotta take a peace offering so we brought a picture of my dad was the president of the cincinnati chamber of commerce i grew up in ohio and then moved to 
um, I moved out West when I was 18. Um, and so we brought a picture of himself, my dad and Ronald Reagan with their arms <laughs> around each other. And oh my God, that was such a hit. And, and it was hilarious. And like we had this great dinner. We really don't agree on stuff, but it wasn't that long ago that you could hang out with people right. that voted differently exactly. and it didn't make congressmen are saying other. this senators mm -hmm. are saying this something's fundamentally changed i want to ask you something specifically about lance because you talk about his family it was his great-grandfather that had come out and was able to get land um and they they weathered you know some horrible storms and um there's a very famous one in the late 1800s mm -hmm. and then dust bowl eras and i find it fascinating because i feel like those folks are working very hard and they take an incredible amount of pride in a very different difficult lifestyle feeds themselves it feeds some other people it, it doesn't always seem like a good idea to me to be doing it what they're doing but then they they often are taking advantage of huge tract of private land that they were able to access as, mm -hmm. as a, a white immigrant American or whatever originally their ancestor. And then they also, as you mentioned, he's grazing on BLM land, public mm -hmm. land. Mm -hmm. So what is his issue with BLM land and the government when he's benefiting yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and you, uh, you hear this over and over again, I feel like, from uh, ranchers out in this yes. area. Yeah, and I, I, I do think that there are reasons for being disgruntled that are not quite fair. Um, because, you know, I, we know that AUMs, that, you know, the, the animal unit monthly, okay. which is what they pay per month for a cow calf fair okay. is I think about a buck 30. If you, if you do the same thing on private land, it's $30. So it's a bargain. It's a bargain. That said, what is irritating and what I understand is that he will have a relationship with a range con or um, range conservationist that's a BLM guy they'll come to an agreement on how to manage the land you know he'll he'll reconfigure all his ways of doing things and operating and then that guy will go to another office and then a new guy will come in and have a new and they have to redo it all. and they have to redo it and it happens over and over and so once you establish a relationship with somebody and you move forward on that plan and then to have somebody just like next year come and do it completely differently it it does it it is but that happens whether you're republican or democrats or in office i mean that has nothing to do with politics it's government i get it but then you're like he hates the democrats okay too. so that so, so i feel like there's layers here yeah, well, but it, it always gets blamed on the democrats and so. and at the time when i sat down with them um the um president biden had just um withdrawn the um xl pipeline and he was very upset about he was that. very upset Why? about that because he thought that revenue from that was going to go to his school district and he is a very very um i mean they they need funding now but there's other it, ways to get funding. Well, there's there's also uh, another side of that story, which okay. is that funding that he anticipated wasn't really going to manifest. So, so there, you know, it, it, and I'm trying to think. There, the, I tell it in here too. He his most his biggest bone to pick was that he was invited to a. I can't remember what board he's on. He's very involved in yeah. any number. Sounded of like it. He's, yes. I mean, he's, he's really, all over. It. He's yeah. really an exceptional guy, yeah. and um, and he was invited to go to some sort of federal 
you know, farm grazing something. And I, 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 if Lance is listening, please forgive me that I don't remember <laughs> what it was, but he, he had to go through training um, in order to understand how to interact with women, it, it you know, sort of, oh, that's right. Right. Yeah, and, and right. uh, you know, how, how do you, it, it was a it sexual was a harassment, sexual training. harassment yeah. training and it just irked him that it was the Clinton administration that of asked all him to administrations, of all administrations. <laughs> and yeah. say that was kind of legit. I, yeah. <laughs> legit. Yeah. But you can't broad brush a whole party based on that one experience. And the thing is, I feel like there's a lot of people who I meet who they will have one thing they'll point to about a particular party or or um, movement, and and they throw the whole baby out with the bathwater because of that one thing. And that's what I don't understand is like, but you never are going to look at anything positive. Well, and I, yeah. I, I have so, to say we're all guilty of that. I mean, okay, I, and I okay. think that we really need to, we need to be aware of that because yeah. that's kind of a tendency. I mean, we get mad about one thing and all of a sudden we write off that politician or that person. Or I would politician. just have to say, I am the one person in my household who doesn't do that. <laughs> Good. And <laughs> no, it, it is because I, but this is being raised and, and choosing anthropology as a field of study you know there's always different worldviews and perspectives. I don't personally do it, but I have to interact with people who do it all the time. So I, I mean, I liked your book, but I get frustrated when people hone in on one thing and then, and then that seems to be their answer to why they believe in this narrow perspective that they do. And I, I guess I'm just wishing, you know, there's a way through and why can't we agree that, like there's plenty of Republicans that, are for things and do things, even though I don't consider myself a member of that party. But there's people who have morals and who I respect less so now than when I was growing up. Oh, it's mm -hmm. it's gotten way more polarized. And that's yeah. what I talk about. I mean, when I'm talking to Lance, one thing that Lance does not like is sidearms. He feels mm -hmm. really uncomfortable seeing people with guns. Well, we all should. And, and if we don't, I, then we're in real trouble. Well, and I think that what I was trying to do is just what you're saying is yeah. how do I see right. all of this here? Yes. And you know what? I would say that he did the same for me. Yeah. I mean, and so that's and why that's we're why able to create so a relationship. It. Because yeah. it was, it, what you're saying is extremely problematic. Right. And I was really trying to get to the other side of that. Like, you know what? It's not black and white, guys. It's nuanced. Never, we never black right, and so that's that's the takeaway of this book. Yeah. Just just what it's like those it's, arguments where if you get into an argument with your spouse or whoever you're living with, and well, you you don't you didn't do this, and then it becomes you never do that, and then well, but then you never do that, and it's those it's those things therapists tell you never to do, and I feel like we're doing it on a grand yeah. scale as a yeah. nation. Yeah, you guys are always this way. You guys never do that. You don't care, and and we've put each other in those. Um, it is it's an unwinnable, untenable position, and we only have two parties, and a lot of this stuff is really silly and stupid and often people weren't intentionally trying to do something harmful now we do have a an ugly history in tremendous amount of ways we agree on that you know in terms of pushing people off the landscape and and you know um having our own genocide occur on on this landscape but but at this point it's like you got to move forward you got to find ways to move forward and stop harping on um an imagined 
mythological past and and demonizing someone so you know another perspective so completely and what you say in the book betsy i think is so important because we have to understand these myths yeah we have to see them for what they are and then we have to talk about them understand them figure out the histories of them and then move forward leaving them in the past Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. talking to one another um, talking to folks like Lance and all the different people you talk to in the book and mm-hmm. coming to these um, shared ideas of how we can move forward together yeah. in a in a good way, in a way that isn't polarization, isn't radicalization and in those different things that you mentioned. And so I love the examples that you use um, and I love all the conversations that you have with all people from all backgrounds, from all different walks of life. And I think that that to me is such an important thing. And Nancy, I want you to talk a little bit before we wrap up, we're, we're getting to the end of our time, but I wanted to, you just to talk about your own experience of this in Montana. And because when um, you did an archeological project in Judith Gap, Montana, you had a lot of these conversations that were so important. So just it, talk a little was, bit about it that. It was very similar because yeah. we were invited to do a field project uh, where there was a bison kill site that had been discovered on this guy's private land. And he had gone to Montana State. He wanted, I think initially he had wanted a way to make money off it, but then he thought this thing is just being excavated by my neighbors who are hunting for points. Maybe bring the university in and, and let them actually discover something about this. So we were brought in to do a field project and and everywhere around it's all private land. And when I went to the state historic preservation office and we were asking for information on what we know about the archeology, span the prehistory of the reason from sites that have been recorded, um, there's nothing because it's all private land. And so all like all the surveys get done on BLM land, on forest land, on stuff like that. And in that area, people were like, nope, we don't want archeologists coming in because if they find either dinosaurs or archeology, span the government or the Indians are gonna take the land back. And so people wouldn't talk about it. They were, they were, you know, there was no information. They didn't wanna share. So we went out, we set up a field school and we invited anyone and everyone who wanted to, to come out see the site suit we were doing, see how we were doing it scientifically. We'd present information. We invited people in and and we we had one man who had done a lot of the uncontrolled, you know, mining of the site for points, but we brought him in to talk about what he learned about the site because he had already opened a big, you know, portion of it and we wanted to at least learn what we could from him. And little by little, by the end of our our field season, you know, people were coming up to us, telling us that they have sites on their land. They'd like to show us, they'd like to talk about it. All of a sudden it broke down, you know, they, but they wanted to ask trust. me a bunch of questions. Mm-hmm. They wanted yeah. the trust and yeah. I was never gonna tell anybody, um, don't pick up a point, don't do it with it. We just said, look, all this stuff is coming off of David Bradley's land. All of the stuff we're gonna analyze and we're gonna give back. It is not ours, it's his. And if he doesn't want it back, maybe there's some sort of community museum, but we're not here to to take and not give back. We're here to build. And it was a very different approach. Um, And it made such a difference. And then boom, COVID up. But it's, right. But it's, it's, but to (laughs) me, to be able to go out there and spend time and earn people's trust, 
then they start to be willing to talk to you and trust. And then, and then we start to, because there's this big gaping hole in our understanding about what happened in this huge chunk of Montana, you know, prehistorically, and with just a little bit of opportunity to walk the fields on somebody's property, you could fill in a lot of those gaps. So for me, it was very past but really everything i have to do is taking place in the present yeah and i'm having to, to engage with people and i'm having to mostly yeah. just listen yeah and let people yeah. ask questions yeah. and let people come to know me and yeah. trust me you know and it was very rewarding because like you said yeah i'm not i'm not super psyched if somebody wants to just dig up a site on their own land but that is legal and i'm not going to sit here and lecture them on it but I'm going to talk to them about what they could learn Yeah, if they had an archaeologist come out and scientifically was able to do a proper, you know, research project. So, yeah, I mean, that's all you can do. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's great. I, I am going to just say just your reaction to Lance um, and the public land rancher sort of. Thing. I'm just trying to understand it. I, I know I'm probably coming across this no, no, really hard. Mention something um, because this book is meant to have everybody bump into a little bit of um, edge. Yeah, it really yeah. is. And I want everybody to be able to self-reflect. I had uh, all my characters read all their chat like he, Lance got to read his chapter yeah. and um you know that Derek who I talk about in the first chapter which is a pseudonym got to read his chapter um Roger Lang um the friendly well friendly guy got to yeah. read his chapter so everybody got to read their chapter so that I really captured what they you know I, I didn't want to do any right gotcha I wanted to be as yeah. objective as possible but but I do I have had people come back and say you're just way too pro rancher in this book well I talk a lot about what ranchers do to wildlife and and how you know it, it's a really it's really hard on wildlife and so what one of the best compliments I've gotten is that I I talked to um Lance uh a couple of months ago and I just reached out like how you doing and he said I'm fine. I'm finally recovering from reading your book because he read the whole thing. <laughs> and meanwhile, so that's going to be edgy for him. I, there's a lot in here that makes it abundantly clear where I stand politically. Right. But I also got a, a message from Ijeoma Aluo in Seattle who wrote, so you want to talk about race. She's a very, very um, well-regarded, she's actually come to Bozeman, but um, well-regarded activist who who um, has been very, very successful in, in her efforts to, to address Address race issues, and um, and she said, "Oh my gosh, I'm really liking this book." And so I thought, you know, if I can have Lance read it yeah. and Ichioma read it, uh, that is what I'm trying to do. It's supposed to go to a broad audience of people. It's going to push people's buttons. Absolutely. It's going to make them say, "How could you?" Blah blah blah, or whatever. But I, I want that to I want that to be the case um, because it that you know. The, the issues push my buttons too. Yeah. So in a way for us to kind of come back together and start talking to each other again, even though we do have um, buttons pushed, we can still continue those conversations and those relationships, which are so important. And, and more than buttons for me, it makes me want to get out there and do mm -hmm. more of talking to people yeah. and, and actually listening to asking questions and then listening. Yeah. yeah. And listening was a big part of the solution that you mentioned yes. as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The yeah. program at Boise State called Idaho yeah. Listeners. Yeah, that's from all great. backgrounds get together and tell their story. I think it's a fantastic model. Oh, that's it's so fantastic. cool. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we are winding down. Okay, <laughs> darn it. <laughs> and wow. so what, a, what an amazing conversation yes. today. So again, so, I, yeah, know. I know. I know, such a good conversation. So good. Back? Yeah, of course. <laughs> You'll be our first food timer. We'll have to get like like a special jacket, like SNL. I know. You'll be our first three timer. <laughs> Yay. We've talked a lot about your book. So now, Betsy, can you tell us where people can get your book? And, yes. And not just your, your True West, your new book, but also American Zion. Yeah, absolutely. You can get it at independent bookstores, which I recommend. Um, you can get it on Libro. You can get American Zion on Libro, um, okay. which is the audio version. Nice. Um, we're working to get True West on the same thing. Mm. But, um, and if you absolutely must, you can order on Amazon, or I would prefer you, if you're ordering it, to order it directly from Tory House Press, okay. which is um, toryhousepress.org. I think, um, but or you can just Google Tory House Press and and you can order it directly from the publishing company there. So it's it's available everywhere. All right, wonderful. that's great. Good, that's good. great. Well, Yay! Go out and get it, everybody. I know, I know. So we're just gonna say thank you to you, Betsy, and thanks to all our listeners and maybe viewers out there for joining us today. So if you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So we want to thank everybody for either tuning in or listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about. The Dirt on the Past. And we wanted to give a special um, shout out again to Ashley Hall. Who you don't get to really see, Yay. but she's there. Yay. Here she comes, here she comes. Yay, Ashley. And she's there, right there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much to Ashley Hall and Chelsea Hogan and all the folks at the Museum of the Rockies for the use of this beautiful studio space. And thank you to Lost and Alegria for mixing the music. And thanks everyone for joining us today.